Mega Gabe. Mega Big Gabe. Big Gabe. Big Gabe is bad. Big value. Buy now, Gabe. And he is big. Buy Gabe, sell hot Gabe. And he is Gabe. You know, I almost was a Benjamin. I ever tell you that? Yeah, you have. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I hate Gabe. I know you don't care for your name, but at least people like can say your name. <laughs> I don't like... I mean... Yeah, well, you yeah, know, I, yeah. I, honestly, if my name was Gabe, I probably wouldn't like it either. It's true. No, I mean, I'm saying, but I, here's <laughs> the thing. It's fine. Like, it's totally fine. Steven's not great. You know what I've re- realized, though, when it comes to naming kids? I can't, not, Ali nor myself have ever agreed on a boy name. Ever. Really? Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, boy names are hard, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. There, there's like, there's like not a lot of good ones. Like, if you had to name a son, what would you name him? It's funny considering... Pietro. No, I I like the name... Gabe? <laughs> no. No, I like the name James. That's really? your middle name, right? Yeah, but like, it's just like... There's a lot of good So unoriginal. It's the classics, man. You're just like... John. Well, don't, you don't go like James. Kanye and name your son North by Northwest. I wasn't thinking that. <laughs> or I'm just like thinking... <laughs> There's, there's Elon Musk. And I feel like there's a lot more room to play with girl names, you know, and, and come up with some cute or some like endearing names with boys. It's like, yeah, you got like a handful of options. Otherwise, you're like, this is my son, Caspian. <laughs> That's dope. <laughs> <laughs> He's from the second book in in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe it's series. The only Caspian <laughs> ever. <laughs> Yeah. See, you you're, you got it. You're a creative guy. Or like... What do you think about Bertrand? Are you serious? Like Bertrand Russell. Are you serious? That's you not wanted a name. a name. That's not a name. Yeah, it, it is. No, it's not. Bertrand Russell is a famous guy. That's the noise you're making with your mouth. <laughs> no. <laughs> Bertrand Russell? Bertrand. I'm pretty creative, but I didn't make that up. Also, are you? <laughs> <laughs> what about Bartholomew? Bartholomew? No, I don't like it. It's like, it's like pick a name. What about? Is it Bart or Thala <laughs> or Mew? Pick one. What's your favorite boy name then? I don't have one. No. Because we never, I, I could never figure one out. I'm like, I don't like boy names. You never had a proposition? For the only life? thing I could ever think of is Peter because I have an intense love for Peter Parker. But I don't even like the name Peter or so Parker. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> you just call him Peter Parker as his first name. Yeah. Peter Peter. <laughs> Parker, James Burnett. <laughs> okay, what about well, go through Green Lanterns? What about Hal? <clears throat> no. What about the other Green Lanterns? <laughs> what are they? <laughs> what are their names? John. John. Or Perfect Ky- name. Or Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle's kind of cool. Got Kyle Katarn. Kyle's my father-in-law's name. Oh. My father. What about Luke? I've known Luke's. Luke is just another. It's another boy's name. You're naming. <laughs> All no, the, you're like you might as well just name him Matt, and then we'll just be done. <laughs> I like Caspian. I don't know. <laughs> is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? I'm gonna be Mark Johnson or John Markson. <laughs> what about Neo? <laughs> <laughs> what about the Silver Surfer <laughs> or the Hulk? <laughs> Can you imagine with a straight face in the hospital? <laughs> Your son is born. That's what I am imagining. The silver surfer. This is the silver surfer. <laughs> You're just holding your baby. Like, sir, we cannot let you name your child that. He has to have your last name. Does he? <laughs> no. Does he now? 
His his first. <laughs> the Silver Surfer Burnett. No. His, That's his, incredible. His first name is the. His middle name is Silver. You know. His last name is Surfer. Somebody's done that to their kid. I know. <laughs> I really want the Silver Surfer to be in the MCU, and I want him to be Keanu Reeves. How did we get onto this segue? Talking about baby names. Boy. We're just talking about Gabe. Oh yeah, dope. Great intro. This is like top ten intro <laughs> all time. Seriously? TCP. We already have four movies to talk about today. Oh yeah. Oh, so welcome to the the Super Mega Cast. Um, I'm your host. <laughs> super Super Mega Super Gabe Cast. Yeah. Today we're gonna run through some movies. And then I have seen. And then we're gonna talk about a movie. Yeah, we'll focus on one, probably the most trending. You know, of the four. Um, but all these are releases from the last, I think, month, month and a half that Stephen, some of them will never see. <laughs> some of them might see eventually. These are all movies that drift between horror and surrealist or uh, psychological thriller. Yes. Somewhere in science fiction. Yeah. Um, that's why I, I would see them by myself. No I also one. want to see them out of pure curiosity. Yeah. Where, where should we begin? Pure imagination. Pure imagination. Uh, start with uh, Shyamalan Ding Dong. Shyamalan Ding Dong. That's as, right, as folks. Tarantino called him. Uh, does he really? Yeah. That's. I wonder how M Night feels about that. <laughs> I don't know. What does the M stand for? <laughs> Master. Massive. <laughs> Master Night. Midnight Night. Master Night Shyamalan. Yes, M Night Shyamalan. Is back is with he? his new feature. Okay. Oh, I don't know if he's back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People keep saying he's back. But is he back? <laughs> I don't know. I saw his movie from, I think it was like two or three years ago. I think it was after COVID called Old, and it was probably the worst thing I'd ever seen in the theater. <laughs> you know, bar none. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it was really bad. You got, and this time you got Jonathan Groff. Yeah, this time... Knock the cabin. We've got Jonathan. We got a great cast. Jonathan Groff and I think what's his, Ben Ben Silver. What's his name? Silverridge. I love Jonathan Groff. John's great. Is John gay in real life? Yeah. There you go. Because I know Ben Aldridge is. That's what his name is. Ben Aldridge. Jonathan Groff. I guess I'll just run through these pretty quick, plot wise. Ben Aldridge and Jonathan Groff are two dudes who have an adopted Asian daughter, who is played by Kristen. What is this? Here's the letters that make this name. C-U-I. <laughs> Kui. 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 She was great. And they're just <laughs> getting a little time away from the big city. And out of the woods comes... And do they go to a cabin? They go to a cabin. <laughs> Knock at the cabin. And it's Dave Bautista, three of his friends, including Ron Weasley. No. Uh, and two women. <laughs> <laughs> whose names are... Niki Amuka Bird and Abby Quinn. No, Rupert Grant, dude. Yeah, I said that. You said Ron Weasley. I, exactly. But it's Rupert Grant. Yeah. He's Name one other film he's been in. He's a person. Knock at the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> These four individuals uh, are heralding the end of the world, and in order to avert that, they they, knock at the cabin. they petition this family of three to choose amongst themselves one person to sacrifice. What? And they say, only you can make this decision. And they pick Kui. No, they don't. They don't pick their daughter. Oh. That'd be crazy. That'd be a great twist. <laughs> um, 
but <laughs> Shyamalan <laughs> twist. <laughs> it's a kid killing film. Full spoilers of this film. Everything is real. There's really no twist. Mm. Dave Bautista and the crew. Well, I guess it, there is ambiguity, but the assumption is that they are predicting actually the end of the world because these plagues and catastrophic events keep happening because these Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge refuse to choose who to sacrifice. By the end, the four quote unquote horsemen of the apocalypse are if they've died one by one through either sacrifice or you know the family defending themselves. And they Jonathan Groff chooses to sacrifice himself for the greater good of the rest of the planet. For the planet, he he sacrifices himself, and they uh, Ben Aldridge and and the girl they drive off into the sunset. Yeah, that was the movie, Knock at the Cabin. Not terrible, I gotta say, it was actually pretty good. I heard the acting was really good. In it. Yeah, well, you had an all star cast, which oh, I was gonna say, do, do the four horsemen characters do they do they like have an emotional response, or they've kind of like just like pretty checked out? No, they're fully checked in. Oh. They're uh, in fact they're going through what you would call traumatic experiences because they were just people before this. They started having these visions, which brought them together on this divine mission. They had shared visions of doing all these things together, so they met up. But throughout this whole experience, they're like, "Please do this because we want to return to our lives and our families." But they have to. They like they're compelled to you know fall through with the mission and then to kill each other as the family repeatedly says no. Like first. Ron Weasley, Rupert Grint is up to bat and he takes the axe like right off the bat because he's like up the bat, right off the bat. He, uh, they kill him because as a horseman dies, it unleashes the plague. That's like the lore of this film. Uh, the first of which was like a tsunami or an earthquake or something. So they kill Rupert Grint and they turn on the TV and that's how you see what else is going on around the world, which is slowly convincing the family that everything is real. So... By the end, like, you don't know for sure that it was the end of the world, but it's, like, pretty much, yeah, you're like, oh, really probably was the end of the world. Because by the end, like, there's thunderstorms. It it feels like Armageddon. Does Jesus come down out of heaven? No. Um, but, yeah. That would have been funny. Was Shyamalan in the movie? He's always in his films. In this one, he does a cameo. That's what I'm the asking. The first time I think they turn on the TV, it cuts to, the first thing <laughs> that you see is, like, a baking show. Oh. And Shyamalan is, like, the host of the baking show. <laughs> I can't remember what he says, but it's pretty funny. Non-intrusive. Sometimes his cameos are... Narcissist. Well, it's, you know, his films are always indulgent. And that's what I was going to say is that he... This film was actually directed pretty well. Uh, He's pretty hit or miss, as we know from Shyamalan. But he injects this film with a lot of his own personal philosophy on everything from religion to the, the film's core conceit or main theme, which is sacrificial love and the things we're willing to do for those we care about the most. As we see embodied by Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge. And so we're constantly flashing back. Like they're going through their own thing because they're a gay couple and the, you know, the traumatic experiences they lived through, whether it was, you know, out in the world or, you know, coming out to their parents, that sort of thing. So there's a lot going on in this film, but it it all felt like it it came together, you know, in a pretty interesting way. And um, I had a good time. Saw it with some friends. No, I didn't. Did I see that one alone? (laughs) I can't remember. But but I like the movie. I wouldn't rate it top half Shyamalan because he's got some good stuff. Maybe I would. I don't know. But it's certainly better than old. Don't watch old. That movie was not good. So let's talk about The Missing. Yeah. Missing. Also, another movie that was good. Potentially better. I had seen Searching, which was... The, Missing, this new movie, is kind of like the spiritual successor, if not more or less a sequel to Searching, which was the John Cho picture from before the pandemic where... 
most of the film takes place on like computer monitors, phones, phone, FaceTime screens, that sort of thing. That's been a gimmick that's kind of popped up here and there in the last 10 years. There's been some like really shitty horror movies that have done the same thing. I saw one called Unfriended, I think, like six years ago. Yeah. But these movies are really clever and they're really interesting little investigative thrillers as well. In the first one, Searching, John Cho's daughter goes missing. And so you follow him throughout the film uh, trying to track down. And all these clues are, you know, given to you through the film's format, which is, you know, through computer screens. Like, and you're, you're seeing like John Cho within a webcam framed on the laptop monitor. And so that's like your screen. So you got all these things happening around the video capture of your main character, like post-it notes, you know, web browsers, not post-it notes, but like uh, notepads and um, all these different applications and different kinds of software that they use to propel the story forward in some really interesting ways. And so with Missing, the new one, not the same directors, but the same writers, they've doubled down on that gimmick and made a really interesting and compelling mystery. Uh, This time we pick up with, what's her name? Storm Reed. What a badass name. That's her real name. (laughs) She played uh, Gia Zendaya's younger sister in Euphoria. Oh, yeah. Storm plays June. And the thing is, uh, pretty quickly, her mother goes off on a some kind of love trip date thing with uh, her new boyfriend, who is soon to be uh, June's stepfather, Ken Long, from Lost. Oh, yeah. And so June's mother uh, and, disappears. And X-Men The Last Stand. Yeah. Yeah. As Spiky Boy. Yeah. What's his name? Spike. Spike. <laughs> great scene. Great movie. Not really. Yeah. The the parents disappear. June's mom disappears with the boyfriend. And so June spends the rest of the movie, you know, pursuing them through. She does a lot of investigative work on the computer, whether it's like prying into emails and different accounts or contacting people from where they disappeared, which is, I think, South America or Central America somewhere. I want to say Colombia. That might not be accurate, but it was something like that. And so she's like, she's doing uh, reconnaissance there, getting in touch with locals to try to figure out what happened. And she's watching all this different feed and playback stuff. And this whole mystery is unfolding and there's all these interesting twists and turns. It kept me interested. And the gimmick never felt gimmicky, like, because they were constantly introducing new elements. Yeah. Some, some fun new ways to make it fresh and keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. And it's very slick. Some of it reminded me they used a couple similar tools to a much lesser degree in um, a decision to leave, actually. Uh, just some really cool digital work, VFX work that you can do to try to make something very topical like this because the younger generation is so consumed by, you know, technology and social media. Anyway, full spoilers. It is revealed that June's father had not passed away because the first thing we see in the film is a flashback of her through camcorder with her father who is presumed to have passed away some years before it's revealed by the end that he is not dead and that he is in fact orchestrating all these events because he is trying to get june back because the father is revealed to be this kind of violent deranged individual who the mother ended up putting away and she lied. She never told June what she did. Uh, she told June that the father had passed away, but she got him to go to prison. And then she took on a new identity. The mother did. And she took June. She moved across the country to live. I think they're in California or somewhere. And so they took it up this new life that June was never, she, she was young. She didn't remember what it was like before. So 
yeah, the father comes back into the picture and he's like doing violent stuff. He kidnaps like June by the end and like brings this her is to all the... looking at a computer screen. Yeah, it's pretty inventive. I don't understand how this is engaging. You'd have to see it to believe it. It's all through like a lot of the the software in this film is like spyware. And so the father has like taken control of webcams, for instance, on like June's laptop. And that's how like he's revealed to be spying on them the whole time. And then through the end, you see like the final confrontation in this rural house through like cameras that he's set up to monitor all these different rooms. And they eventually beat him. You know, they, they, they kill him, and uh, June is reunited with her mother, and for all that we know, they live happily ever after with a, a brand new appreciation for each other as human beings because June, you know, never really took her mom very seriously mm. before her mother disappeared. So anyway, um, not an all-time movie for the books, but a really well done and stylish, sleek. Sounds interesting. Mystery thriller film sounds interesting yeah there you go that's missing go check it out and now we go on to david cronenberg's son brendan cronenberg out with his i think third or fourth feature it's called infinity pool we did a sequel or we we covered a brandon cronenberg film before called pauses her pauses her potentially my favorite film of 2020 (laughs) probably i really liked possessor i know you did and i had High hopes for Brandon, but seeing trailers last year for Infinity Pool, it looked really bad. Cringe. Looked pretty cringe. That might just have been due to the really poor quality trailer. But yeah, everyone was hyping it up. They saw it. They said it was good. Kind of like After Sun, so I had to check it out. (laughs) And I did, and it was really good. It wasn't... I wouldn't uh, rate it above Possessor for personal taste, you know, subjectively. Yeah. But it was really good. It was interesting. It was trying to do a lot. The surrealist... Style that Brandon has taken from his father is still there in droves. Cool. Great body horror, of course. You wouldn't be Cronenberg without body horror. Yeah, it's a pretty mysterious storytelling again. A lot of twists and turns there. And a fantastic performance by Alexander Skarsgård. The main hook of the film, full spoilers at this point, although this is introduced pretty early on, is the premise of the film is uh, doppelgangers and the execution of doppelgangers. Because in this invented third world country where this invented resort is the whole thing plays like white lotus where it's like uh this elite wealthy clientele are they're like the subject matter of the film and it's like going through their decadence and their debauchery and uh, you know it's uh it's attacking them for the most part anyway alexander skarsgård uh does a hit and run and he's going to be executed in this country and so there's a loophole in this country to keep their wealthy clientele to this resort where you can pay to get a doppelganger maid who is one for one lifelike and it retains the memories of its host or it's uh you know it's template the individual the original alexander skarsgård so that when it's dead its remorse is true and then it's made to be a spectacle where not only does uh the offended family get to come and do the execution themselves the family of the deceased but Alexander Skarsgård gets to watch. And so this event happens a couple times throughout the film because he becomes more and more... Hooked? Yeah, he gets hooked on this experience. That's that's a great way to put it. But also... Um, Kinked? Yeah, he's fascinated by it. So he, he does a couple things where he like 
runs into like a, another group of individuals who are into this this whole thing that's like a subculture in the resort where they will do something that causes them to get into trouble and they have to have doppelgangers made and then they get to watch them become dead they get to watch them be executed and they're super into it and there's like an orgy halfway through the film like this really intense weird orgy uh with some great in-camera effects because that's how brendan does things <laughs> similar scene in possessor but yeah, by the end of the film, Alexander Skarsgård has fallen way off the wagon, and this f- group of friends that he's made have gone full psycho, including Mia Goth, who gives another legendary Scream Queen performance as a complete psycho. That seems to be uh, her brand <laughs> as of the last few movies she's made. And uh, he tries to get away, but he can't, and his relationship is essentially disintegrated with the woman he came to the resort with. Hmm. And he gets to have the opportunity, finally, to return to society. But by the end of the film, he says goodbye to Mia Goth because they've kind of more or less come to terms with each other. And Mm -hmm. he's not able to return to society. And the last thing we see is he's stayed on the island or the the coast of whatever country they're at, this Mm. resort, which Mm -hmm. is the resort is now closed for the rainy season, as they call it. And he's sitting there with his multiple vases, his vases. Because when your doppelganger is killed, they cremate them and give you the vase as a souvenir. Nice. So he's got three or four of those things now. And he's just sitting there on the beach in the rain, existing in the space because he can't go back to living his life before because of this experience that he's lived through. So a big a big theme of the film is... Four times. <laughs> yeah. Is uh, masculinity, specifically with Skarsgård, because before he was this kind of failed writer who came into the movie, this narrative as someone who was constantly being emasculated in one way or another, or at least that was how he perceived his life. And so this film was about him kind of reconnecting with his feral, atavistic, Mm. primal self. Mm. And so by the end, he does that by killing his final doppelganger, which is like an actual, like, feral version of Alexander Skarsgård. And so now he's gone through all this, and he doesn't know how to process any of it, and he's stuck here because he can't return to normal life, and that's just where the film cuts to black. Nice. It's a pretty interesting, it's got a lot to say. I haven't even fully figured out what it's saying, but it's like, it's a, it's a Cronenberg flick. Yeah. So if you're into that sort of thing, you should check it out. It's crazy that like Brandon seems to be carrying on his dad's mantle of just like really weird, continuing the same genre, you know? Yeah. It's almost like, it's definitely left like a, if I if I was gonna become a director after my dad was a director, like I might pick a different genre or like try to do something a little bit different. But yeah, that genre is cool. <laughs> yeah, that that happens a lot where the the younger generation will break away. But Brandon is obviously tapped into pretty much the same stuff his dad's on, <laughs> and it's great. There's not a lot of people doing that sort of thing right now. The interviews with him are really funny because yeah, he's like just a weird dude. But he loves his craft. Yeah. And he loves... The, another thing I love about Brandon is his his adoration for uh, practical effects and per, also uh, in-camera stuff. He seems really smart. Yeah. You know, he knows what he's doing. He does. But he's, you know... And the people he works with, too. He attracts some great talent. Like, yeah. especially uh, the soundtrack for this one was done by Tim Hecker, who I've been a fan of for a long time. He's got this instrumental... Um, ambient atmospheric really really lends to the vibe and to the tone of the movie really cool yeah anyway 
Right here, we're going to do a new thing that we normally do, where we play a song. Yes. Recommended song. You've got another one for us, don't you, Steve? I do. And Gabe's been waiting for me to talk about this song. I've been waiting. It is called New Life by a band called Brother Tiger. One word, Brother Tiger. And uh, I'd say it fits uh, kind of a tone that um, we're kind of talking about today. A little weird, a little funky, a little vibey. Here it is. TCP. There's an interesting thing. Can I comment on that? Sure. Since we're doing this in real time. That is a great segue uh, into this next one because the first thing I think of when I hear the opening notes of that song, the first few seconds, is that I can't remember what the like the genre or subgenre is called off the top of my head, but it's like that sound of 80s and 90s mall vibes. Like yeah. when you're walking through the mall. There's a word for it that is escaping me because I'm super into that. You talking about that '90s VHS grainy thing? Yeah, but there's a genre of music that oh. does play with that, and I'm totally blanking on it. Oh, it's kind of like vaporwave, oh. which is what they call it on the internet, mm-hmm. where it's like capturing the internet. <laughs> You've heard of it? <laughs> the well, same. It's important for what we're going to talk about next because it's capturing this uh, kind of this pastiche of nostalgia from this end of the 20th century where and a lot of that plays with liminal space too because all these things these places are like abandoned now if they still exist like the malls and so you're knocked down what's that they just knocked down our was like our second mall in orange county yeah uh or south orange county they just knocked it down like the full like the full mall it was like a huge mall it's 
completely decimated. It's so sad. Demolished. It's like the it's like a demolishing a part of your past. I remember walking through there like I don't know, six years ago, and like every third shop was open, but the rest of it was like abandoned mm-hmm. and it had still had like all the fake plants and stuff, but it was just like just dead. It was like a it was like a, it was like it was like a the night of the living dead or no, no uh what's the, the dawn of the dead yeah dawn of the dead where they're in the mall and it's like i just expected like like zombies to be charging through it or something yeah pretty fun i love hearing you talk about the early 90s because i this was six years ago <laughs> <laughs> well i mean uh tangentially because you've talked about like you remember malls very well as a kid oh yeah yeah um, i'm a huge mall guy Anyway, just to mention that as part of the tonal aesthetic, because today's fourth and final film of the super mega cast. And the one everyone has been waiting for on the budget of $15,000. Was it really that? Dude, yes. That's crazy. Which is why I, well, yeah, here, the, movie, the movie we're doing today is called Skinamarink. Skinamarink. And when Gabe first told me, he's like, I'm, I'm going to go see this experimental uh, art house horror film. I was like... Is it Skinamarink? Because Skinamarink seemed, it was really interesting to me. I love when low budget indie pictures get the success that they do. I think I think Skinamarink has grossed well over a million dollars now. Well, that happens a lot with low budget horror films, but never one quite so low and never one quite so ambitious yes. in, yeah. in terms of stylistic, right. you know, absurdity or obscurity. It's It's very, very niche. Yeah. And a lot of people ended up seeing this movie because of the... Not necessarily the hype, but because of the buzz around it. Because buzz, it was, yeah. as Stephen described, you know, this kind of sensation. And uh, it it wasn't for everybody. <laughs> I've been reading some stuff where it's just like, people hate that they spent the money and the time on this movie. Interesting. But a lot of people really dug it because of what it was doing. And so what is Skinamarink? Skinamarink is the feature-length film from, by Kyle Edward Ball... Mm. who, I don't know the full story on this, but he must have gotten some kind of, well, I can't even say like connections or funding because he did, but it's only $15,000. But he did a short film on YouTube. He has a he has this small YouTube channel called, I think it's Bite Size Nightmares or something like that. And he did a short film a couple years ago called Heck. Mm. It was a 30-minute short film, kind of like the precursor to Skinny Marink. But yeah, Kyle Edward Ball made a film called Skinamarink. Skinamarink is essentially a an ode to and a celebration of this thing, this phenomenon that has occurred in the last like 20 years of the rise of the internet called analog horror, which is in of itself rooted in the aesthetic, the lo-fi aesthetic of the 80s and 90s. It's uh, like that show we watched, uh, Archive 81. Uh, yeah. That was also doing... I was paying homage to that, but this is exclusively right. Uh, there's a sub. There's a <laughs> subgenre of it that you were telling me about called I forget the name of it. It was like analog horror. Yeah, this specifically, like, it was like '90s vibe or something like that. I forget what it's called. Yeah, I. You know what? Did I take notes? I'd have to see. But yeah, analog horror. These are some buzzwords that I was thinking of in the theater. Analog horror, liminality, creepy pasta. Um, yeah, essentially what this movie is, is it's light on the narrative, but it follows the events over the course of an indeterminate amount of time um, because of its surrealist nature. But we pick up at night in this home. Again, the time period is unknown. 
but in this home, there's a family of two kids. There's a boy and a girl and their parents who disappear about 10 or 20 minutes into the film. And then we spend the rest of that runtime, which I think is over an hour and a half, with these two kids and their experiences over that night, which then it sort of extends out into, like I said, an indeterminate amount of time could Mm be eternity because they get pulled into this sunken place or something. Um, But there, there quickly comes to be known... There is something wrong in this house. It's there's either a poltergeist or some kind of malevolent entity in this home, because there starts to emanate from dark corners and you know obscured hallways a voice like some kind of black Philip demon, you know, <laughs> calling out to these children. The sunken place. Simultaneously, doors and windows are disappearing, and you see that. And there's always a cute little sound effect, like bing, every time. Uh, you're watching a door; it'll just it'll disappear. Sometimes it'll reappear. Sometimes it'll just stay on a wall. But the the t- the description of this film is all the doors and the windows have basically disappeared from this home, and so the kids kind of have free reign, but they're not able to leave the house for one reason or another. They're stuck in this house, and that's basically the story of the film. You know, this entity, uh, whatever it is, uh, it speaks to the kids and it pulls them in one by one. Um, so gnarly into. Nowhere land. The sunken place. Yeah. It it starts with the daughter halfway through the film. I guess full spoilers from here on out. The daughter is taken first. There's this incredibly terrifying, intense scene where uh, the daughter is summoned up to the upper room, the master bedroom, and she sees her parents in there, but they're not her parents. They're like Blair Witch facing the wall. And then uh, she's essentially gone <laughs> at that point. And the boy follows her. And later on sees her and there's like a jump scare flash where she's revealed to be like missing part of her face. Like her, her facial features are just missing and she's like Slender Man. And then the boy over the next half of the movie is um, slowly uh, lulled and like seduced by the darkness into entering somehow the liminal space of eternity by entering another dark room. And he's like... Yeah, it's super unclear and ambiguous, but we see some flash cuts towards the end where he's like gone. He like he's he drifts further and further into this liminal space in the back room and uh there's like the last few minutes of the film are just like cuts to imply that the kids are gone and they're stuck in this kind of looping purgatory kind of space where like there'll be a, a, a Lynchian cut where there's this like flash of blood that splatters on the wall. And it'll disappear, and it'll reloop, and you'll hear a scream or something. Very, very scary and unnerving stuff. But um, the manner in which all this happens, like the the way in which it's shot, is why this film has caught so much. It's become kind of a sensation because it is very peculiar. Every shot in this film is what you might consider to be off center or askew, or it's pointing at something that's otherwise unimportant, like a corner of the room or the foot of a chair the bottom of a television, a bucket of Legos that have been scattered across the carpet in the family room. You never get a good view of your two protagonists or of anything really that would typically take the center of the frame in a mega, you know, in a standard motion picture. So you have to contend with that. And if you can't get on board with that in the first few minutes, you're going to have a bad time for the, for the entire run of the movie. Also, everything is incredibly lo-fi. Like I said, that's low fidelity, very grainy, very noisy, every shot, uh, including the sound, very staticky. In fact, there's this kind of super peaky, low room tone 
static that plays throughout the whole film. Dialogue, which is sparse, but it exists, is often obscured as well. Anyway, the whole movie is basically just a, an exercise in tone, like a conceptual mood reel for, like, it feels like it, it's something that should be a short film, and it was, because he started as a short film. But even still, if you're able to immerse yourself into what this film is doing, and that's just creating an atmosphere, honestly, and nothing more. <laughs> I mean, like, very little more, narratively. Um, then there's something to be to be taken away from that. It's very experimental. Like I said, this sort of thing has caught on in a big way in the last few years, especially with the younger generation, which is really fascinating because it is a nostalgia rooted in, you know, the end of the 20th century. You know, you have stuff like The Backrooms, which is caught on in a big way on YouTube. And now A24 has picked up... Funding, came, came, funding a 17-year-old kid's film. Yeah, kid... And that's a great thing we should mention. Uh, Kane Parsons, who runs a channel called Kane Pixels, who has only been creating Backrooms YouTube's videos for less than two years, I think, has just been picked up by A24 to make a feature-length film. And he's 17 years old. He hasn't even finished high school yet. So weird. So bizarre. Because analog horror is something that is really, really fascinating. And it is something that is often... Um, indescribable and it creates this sense of dread and what's great about it is it doesn't often rely on jump scares skin and marink has a few jump scares just to really like mess with you but analog horror is all about creating tone it's about uh creating an atmosphere and setting it up and that's what gives you this sense of dread because it often is very um long format and drawn out because these are youtube videos mm -hmm. and there's no expectation for a YouTube video from like a, a studio who's like telling you to, you know, cut your film in a certain way and change the pacing. So you can get some really interesting experimental stuff. One of my favorite examples, which was over 10 years ago, was the YouTube series called Marble Hornets, which was like the original, not the original Slenderman mythos, but it introduced the Slenderman mythos to a whole generation and made it a kind of a cultural sensation. And I don't know if you've ever watched any of that. Um, but that was a big no. deal for, for me and my friends in high school. So circa 2008, 2009, 2010, it was this YouTube series, incredible exercise in budget horror filmmaking, uh, for, for like found footage. Cause that's mm -hmm. what it was. Mm -hmm. But again, it's something that capitalized on that lo-fi aesthetic and a lot of effects that, that, that root you in that time mm -hmm. and space and everything is, is like working towards that goal. So all that bizarre camera work, you know, focusing on liminal spaces and there's really subtle ways that this film can make you uncomfortable. And uh, that's pretty interesting to me. So I was really glad I got to see it in a theater because in that environment, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of this overwhelming sensory experience where you're just kind of, you have to, you, oh, you can leave the theater, but otherwise you're surrendering, surrendering yourself to the, yeah. To the experience, so yeah. yeah, was it good? I don't probably not, but was it really cool? To I mean, and I was even like uncomfortable in the theater because I was like a little bit. It can be tedious at times, but I was constantly wondering, like, well, how's this gonna? Where's this gonna go? And uh, it end it ends in a pretty satisfying way for me, where you know both the kids, like I said, have been taken, and uh, the voice, the entity, has kind of one and then the last thing you see the final frame is it, it's addressing the audience and this face just barely comes out of obscurity through the darkness and you know you can tell it's a face but you can't make out any details and then it starts to address the audience and it's like 
asking you like what's your name and stuff like that and pretty cool that stuff is is pretty unnerving um yeah yeah sounds like it i would definitely not recommend this film to anybody uh unless really unless the the great caveat of your you're really into wild, obscure, experimental stuff, and yeah. you're into that aesthetic, and you want to, you're willing to, you know, surrender yourself to that, right? Because it, it is a commitment. Watching a movie like this for almost two hours, whatever it was, ninety minutes. Yeah, what well, was longer than an hour and a half? I think it was like ninety-one minutes, <laughs> an hour forty. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, there are times when you're watching it, it can feel like a stretch. Mm-hmm. But I mean. It's 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 something, <laughs> yeah. It's something that's worth talking about, mm-hmm. if nothing else. Is there a song we could play here? I don't think there was really any music, but they do through some of the capture of the television. They're watching some old '90s cartoons. I just remember the old Skinnamarink song from some old show I used to watch when, I, like, I was like in my early early '90s, like maybe even late '80s. That might have been the namesake, but I don't think that was the cartoon that was playing. Yeah. But it'd be no, fun no to... it's not a cartoon. It was live action. Oh, yeah. Well, like, we should play that here. Skin and ring, It'd yeah. be cool if there was like a more ominous version of it, but I guess it's just as ominous because it's. I'm sure classic. someone's created something spooky yeah. online. Ooh, that's spooky, like Halloween. Yeah. Well, Gabe, thanks for doing all the the Lord's work, watching yeah. all this stuff, and um. The good work. I, I, one day I'll see a couple of these. Yeah. I just saw It Follows not too long ago. Oh, yeah? It's a good picture. That was one of the movies that kind of brought about what I consider to be the contemporary, this modern renaissance of indie horror. You know, early 2010s. I think It Follows was like 2015. But that's like, those Those are usually when people think about the stuff that's being made now, but they point to those movies like... Mm-hmm. Um, the Babadook, The Witch, It Follows, yeah, all came out in a pretty similar time frame. Well, Babadook. Babadook. Or at least in heavily like metaphor-centric films. Yeah. Yeah, Because that's sure. you, usually, you know, when you make a good movie, it's trying to say something. Yeah. So, pretty cool. Horror is pretty cool, man. Pretty scary. I like to be scared. Spook me. <laughs> <laughs> Spook me. Yeah, we have uh, some cool horror movies coming up, too. A little less uh, indie and artistic in terms of what it's trying to say, but Evil Dead comes out in April, which I'm excited for. Another one? Sam Raimi, I think, is producing. I don't know. You ever see the original? No. Really? Or Evil Dead 2? No. I'd like to. I just haven't come across it. And I know, I think Evil Dead 1 plays a little more straight, right? Where Evil Dead 2 is is the absurdist comedy. But they've kind of abandoned that. But they did have the Ash vs. Evil Dead series, which was very well received, and it, it captured that mm-hmm. classic Bruce Campbell camp. Mm-hmm. But I think it's Bruce not. Campbell. Bruce Campbell. Yeah. We're we're over time, so yeah. we're gonna play a song. And thanks again. See you guys, everyone. See you next time. Yeah. On the TCP for a regular podcast. <laughs> In this house.
in this world. In this house. In this house.